Support for our show comes solely from listeners like yourself. If you like what we're doing, help us by sharing the pod on social media and leaving us a five-star review, whether it's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Audible. Thanks again for listening, and without further ado, let's start the show. My name is Nicole Teagarden. I teach second grade reading and writing and social studies. I am sticking with my union to protect my students' access to quality literature in an open and diverse and inclusive classroom library. Hey guys, welcome back to PCTA's Fire Podcast. I'm Brennan Pickett. I'm the Fire Co-Chair and FEA Director here at PCTA. I'm Philip Del Castro, Fire Co-Chair at PCTA as well. I'm Stephanie Rosal, Mathematics Teacher at San Pete High. I'm Mary Gressley, ESE teacher at Richard O. Jacobson Technical High School in Seminole. And we're here today to talk about an issue that is pretty relevant to our ESE and mathematics teacher. And it's this idea of why is the teacher shortage failing our children? And yes, I do want to use that strong language today. Kind of a light episode, I think, right? How is it failing our children? And I'm looking at math and ESE for specific reasons today because they are seeing specific shortages, which is greatly hurting our children in different ways. So how does the lack of personnel in our field or in your fields rather affect your day-to-day work so i kind of want to go to stephanie and mary and say what does your day-to-day work kind of look like well i if i think about the shortage i think about during the last quarter i did have the opportunity to teach two courses at the same time (laughs) i don't know how i did it but it happened and i went back and forth through to them and hoping that they would do what i was asking them to do in between And that was because we were uh, missing a teacher and all her classes had to be covered somehow. There was not enough coverage even from us. I sacrificed my planning period and it was kind of nuts for a while. And I can speak as a St. Pete High colleague of yours. This is not a St. Pete High issue. This is kind of a district statewide issue where we're seeing just empty classrooms. And then what do you do with these kids? They still have to learn something, right? That's that's the idea. Math classrooms specifically are empty quite a bit too. Well, because if you think about it, these math teachers can get better jobs. Oh, yes. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, if you are going to get a math degree, who's going to be a teacher? You think about how much money you're going to make as an actuary or simple other positions, and it's guaranteed. And you have ordered work hours. And and you don't have to take work home with you at night. Yes. And um, so on a normal day, Rizal, what does it look like from beginning to end for you? Well, I usually right now I'm coming in around 7 o'clock. I got a little bit better with not coming in too early. (laughs) I curtailed my eagerness a little bit. I will prepare my board if it's not been prepared yet. And yes, we're going to have a class. And I will start with a first period. Luckily, in first period, I have a pretty good group right now. And then it starts getting uh, hot and heavy with period two, who is very lively. And right afterwards, I have my planning period. Period four is uh, 30% special needs. And uh, period five is 36% special needs, not counting ELLs because it's not really a special needs category. And it shows, especially my period five, right before lunch, that is the strenuous period I have. And I do have uh, ESE support, but not all the time. 
The problem that I think my ESE support have, they basically have to know as much math as I do if they want to be super effective because a lot of their students are per plan required to basically have a hand-holding. It's not enough and it's not that successful just uh, to remind them, hey, there's a job to be done. Hey, you know, there's notes to be taken. Hey, why don't you open up your book page at that prescribed level? They are for the most part, succeeding only if they have one-on-one engagement. With that amount of students, we would need to really have uh, more staff in the classroom that is versed in math, or the support would be at a lower level. I think this is a good transition to Mary here, because you are the ESE teacher. Yes, I am. Do you know what she's talking about? I think a lot of us don't really understand what you do. I think a lot of people don't understand what an ESE teacher does on a daily basis. Well, in addition to dropping into a classroom for support to one, two, up to 15 or 16 students in a classroom, I write their IEPs. I follow up with them to make sure that they're doing all the work that they need to do. I also do progress reports for their IEP, talk to parents on a daily basis, work with my colleagues that are in the ESE department with me, and we split between math and English, and then we go into U.S. history or science or whatever other classes we need to support. So every day is something different. I mean, I have a set schedule, and I'm not teaching a class, so I'm in the classroom all day long. I have a planning period and then I have extra periods to work on paperwork. But 99% of the time, those paperwork periods, I'm running around putting out fires or making copies or doing this or running here or doing that. And just from my own personal experience of what I've seen, I've always seen ESC kind of historically rather cut every single year. Absolutely. Yes, you do have people like in Rizal's field, math, where mm-hmm. obviously teaching isn't paying out for them, right? And they can get a better job somewhere else. But Then I think about what's happening with ESE because I've only been teaching for six years at St. Pete, but every year there's always unit cuts and every year they're always saying, well, we'll just get rid of the ESE teacher. And then the new school year starts and they're scrambling to find a new ESE teacher. What do you see at your school? It's hard to say because at my school, our principal and AP really try hard to make sure that we have appropriate staffing. We just don't have the staff to give them everything that they need and It's not just because people don't want to work there. It's because you can't hire somebody to do this job because the amount of work that they ask me to do, I need to make 10 times what I make now. And that's not not asking for more money because I can't get it anyway. How long does it take you to write an IEP on average? Depending on what I have to put in it, it can take me anywhere from one day to a week. Wow. <laughs> because I have to wait for the teachers to return information to me. Oh, yes. Right. Yeah. So I, the classroom teacher has to return information. If they don't return it timely, then I have to wait. I mean, we, we get can, that also, too, yeah. where yeah. like we get all these IEP uh, <laughs> and 504 messages in our inboxes. And there's just so many of them. And it's, I mean, it takes, so it does definitely does not take us a week to do those. I mean, well, they hand those things, they hand out 504s like chiclets. They do. Yes. I and mean, everybody has a 504, but I mean, mm-hmm. they, they, they do still need the information from mm-hmm. them. And a lot of times it's, I need a, I need 504 or I need IEP information for this kid. I'm like, I haven't seen this kid. This kid just right. doesn't come to class. I don't know right. anything. How are their test scores? Be like, beats me. Yes. And, and you know, all you can do is give us the information that you have. Exactly. Right. That's all we're asking for is, are they in class? Are they not in class? 
How can we get them in class? What can we do to get them there? How can we give them the services that they need? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we're doing ourselves a disservice. I have a master's degree in English. Mm-hmm. What am I doing? I'm writing IEPs. Using those English skills. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of yeah. writing. <laughs> I mean, and I'm not, you know, I'm not standing here trying to brag that I have a master's degree. That's not it. I, you know, I figured if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go all the way and get as much education right. as I possibly can. I stopped after a master's because I didn't really want to go to school anymore. Yeah. And well, I was older when I went to school. So, I mean, I think for some of us in this room, we're looking at the, the possibility or the prospect of getting a master's degree and just saying it's not worth it. I not mean, in education. It's no, not, not yes. in this job for sure. Now I know with an English degree, I could go and do anything else I wanted and make a lot more right. money. But I like being with the kids. All right. You're listening to PCTA's Fire Podcast. I'm here today with Philip El Castro, Stephanie Rizel, and Mary Gressley. We're talking about how our day-to-day work is as a teacher. Well, I want to bring this back to the student for a second. How does the lack of professional support contribute and determine overall student performance and behavior on campus? How does this keep failing our children? I'm going to go back to that, that, that rhetoric again. It's failing our children, guys. And how? Mm-hmm. Um, if I could uh, say just one thing. My, my youngest niece um, is on the autism spectrum. And my sister moved her entire family, moved house to get into a better school district for um, ESE services specifically. So the district in Georgia that she's in now has the services that my niece needs. And they are very happy. They are very, you know, my niece is thriving there. That's why a lot of the students come to our school, because it's small. Yeah. We can house a small environment. These kids are applying for technical programs like nursing and, and veterinary assisting, but they don't have the academic rigor mm. right. to meet that requirement. So here's what's happening. They fail the program, mm-hmm. but yet they're getting the small services, the small student body and the small educational environment that their parent wants them to have. Mm-hmm. And when, when I talk to my sister about teaching here <clears throat> in Florida and she she says, uh, or I'll tell her stories with, with my ESE kids, because I have classes that are also like upwards of more than 40% ESE, which is a challenge to teach a college level level course to kids that need services that are routinely unavailable because they're being pulled away for test proctoring, the support are being pulled away for uh, any number of things that are not doing what what I need the help with, right? So I'm supposed to be teaching a college level course with no help. Mm-hmm. So I tell my sister these stories and she says, are these kids getting anything from your class? And I said, there's absolutely not. There's no way because I can't, you know, I can accommodate, you know, I can differentiate my my lesson plans and my learning and what we're doing but a lot of it is just like are you here doing something that's the best we can do right now because i got 35 kids in this room and some of them and like i said in some of my classes almost half of them need like special attention and mm-hmm. i got 47 minutes to knock all this out mm-hmm. plus fill out all the iep and 504 paperwork that comes through the mm-hmm. inbox at the same time and we have to track all the services that we provide to them through their IEP every time we work with them. So if you have a class of 15 students where you're providing services, you have to I have to document for the district wow. so that they can see that we're giving them the appropriate services. Yeah. So if I can intervene there, I have um, in my classroom uh, one uh, <coughs> ESE support person and uh, she is regularly super busy with just the administration of what she did during the day and while possibly another student could benefit and I just determined for like my period five I have and I wrote this down so I have 12 ESE categorized students if the support person alone would spend four minutes per student 
in those 45 minutes. I know that at minimum half of them, if not 75% of those special needs kids would need her next to themselves. That's my observation. And I'm thinking about how many ESC teachers we have at our school alone. It's what, maybe a handful? And I'm sure it's less at, at Jacobson, right? We have four. Four. That's actually pretty impressive. Well, that's including our VE specialist. But I think I keep thinking about, is it really enough? And people mm-hmm. people love public schools because we do accommodate to these children. We right. do provide right. support for them. Mm-hmm. So every year, I feel like it's taking more of a hit. Are we capable of doing this job correctly? No. <laughs> and that's the end of the show, guys. Thank that's- you. <laughs> Simple answer. No. No, we're not. Because we're doing a disservice to these kids. We're not teaching them what they need to know. We're not teaching them how to survive. We're teaching them how to Google the answer. Mm-hmm. Look it up on Google because I really don't have time to spend with you. I, mm-hmm. Not that I would ever tell a student that, ever. But that's basically what they do. They how watch what time. the other kids do. So they figure out, well, I'll just figure out. I'll just figure it out. And Stephanie, you teach algebra, right? No, I teach geometry. But you did okay. teach algebra. But I also mm-hmm. teach algebra at the same time. Right. Because <laughs> more- <laughs> she's superwoman. No, because a lot of students are simply did not even pass the Algebra 1 EOC because of COVID and other reasons, not only COVID. And so I have uh, partly have some students that have come at, to my classroom with an elementary school level of math knowledge because I diagnose all my students because I want to know how they come in. Right in the first week, everybody has to take this diagnostics test. And then I see what I've got right now. What do they remember? What do they have? What what do I need to fill in for? And I know that half of my time right now teaching geometry is really teaching algebra because that's not a prereq. That's something now that I have to also include in my lesson, which is an, an interesting thing because I do have a stretch from super high-level performers all the way to elementary-level math diagnostics results. So I have to somewhat stretch myself out, diversify, give uh, certain students certain privileges to work ahead, and I cannot definitely not wait until the last student understands the concept. I, I don't have that possibility. I have a pacing guide that I need to keep. Mm-hmm. And all students are res- expected to have a certain performance level at state standards. And I'm noticing, because your geometry, mm-hmm. right, they come from algebra first. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that these students are prepared for geometry, even though they're being pushed through? No. I mean, uh, and for what reason, uh, we can say COVID, right? But I feel also that, especially for special needs, um, a lot of students are getting pushed through until finally in high school, it hits real world. And I feel as their high school teacher, if I just kind of go, oh, Johnny here doesn't need to know five of the standards. Let's just let him go by. That's n- First of all, that's not ethical. No. Second of all, I signed basically up two standards that the state of Florida gives me. And now what am I going to do? ESE department likes me to make it possible that all my ESE students will pass at the highest grade possible. Then, on the other hand, I have a pacing guide. So there's a constant pull back and forth. And at some point, I had to just say, hey, I'm going to do what I think is right, which is I'm going to stay with the state standards. That's what I signed up on. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to try to do my best to include all students 
some of them can work ahead and they have privileges. They don't have to even pay attention to me because some of them basically can teach themselves in my yeah. class. Us, because we teach like upper class people, or I do, I teach upper classmen in, um, in high snob. school. You snob. I mean, they are in Ooh. 11th grade is what I mean by that. So, but because of our school and where our kids come from, and I mean, I, when I first started teaching, me and Rizal started teaching the same year. Yeah. And so far in my classroom, I've had to go over with 11th graders what syllables are. Mm. And then like almost every single time we'll read something. And then I hear from somewhere in the room, what is XVI? And I'm like, oh yeah, Roman numerals. I forgot that um, <laughs> some schools just skip that entirely. Yes. So I have to like go back and go over like mm-hmm. things that should be foundational knowledge that is just missing for some reason. And that's across the board. That's ESE, that's 504, that's traditional students. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we just don't know what we're going to get no. just because of right. where we are. You just like Roselle was saying, you see it, you see it in English, you see it in math, especially. Mm-hmm. The they can't R's. write. They, <laughs> they can't write. They can't read. They don't know words. They look at these SAT and ACT words and they're like, I need to know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's so, yeah. it's so mixed too that it's like it's hard to focus in on any one thing yes. in particular. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and again, I'm not advocating for separating everybody mm-hmm. out, but I mean, we should have the support for it because if I had people in the room helping me with some of these kids who are missing like very basic fundamental reading and writing skills, you know, we could just move the class on. Well, but, the district wants us to do pullouts. I've and, never seen that and in high school. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not pulling these kids out. You are listening to PCTA's Fire Podcast, and I'm here today with Philip Bell Castro, Stephanie Rizell, and Mary Gressley, giving an in-depth look at how Florida's drastic teacher shortage is ultimately failing to provide meaningful accommodations for our children. Big news happened a few days ago. Big news. HB1, House Bill 1, was signed into law on March 27th by Ron DeSantis, which will divert billions of taxpayer dollars out of public schools and into private and charter school voucher programs. How will this law worsen the current situation we find ourselves in? I kind of want to speculate here because... Oh, I can speculate real well. Oh, what's here? What do you think (laughs) about this one, Mary? Oh, yeah. So what's going to happen is all of these ESE students are going to get pulled and they're going to get these wonderful vouchers and they're going to go to these private schools and these private schools are going to go, yeah, no, I don't think we can help you. You're going to have to go back to public school. And they're going to come back to us and they're going to be further behind than they already are. Mm -hmm. And we're going to pick them up and brush them off and keep moving forward with them. Are we setting up public schools to be almost exclusively... The, the, yeah. the essentially what private schools and charter schools are casting off yeah. and then it's going to make our jobs infinitely harder about. with infinitely less support we'll have <laughs> more discipline problems we'll have more ESC kids we'll have more 504 kids we'll have more kids with ELL and language issues reading issues you name it wow and I think the punchline here right is they're going to come back to us but that money they got from that voucher they ain't going to get that back no we're not getting that back that's going to stay into the private and charter schools mm-hmm. so we get the problems and then I'll say but problem. not the money I, but not the money right yeah well and problems is a broad description it's not really all the work the, we're going to have to do more work with even less than what we currently have which isn't a whole lot. And you got to think about when there's less funding, there's even less ESE support. There's even less math teachers. Mm -hmm. There's more students in the classroom, Mm -hmm. right? And it it just keeps the pile on, it just keeps happening. And it's it's nonstop. 
in a profession that people are fleeing from. Uh, yes. In a profession that people are teacher fleeing shortage. from. Teacher and, yeah. and, shortage. And teacher schools are mm-hmm. closing because they don't have yeah. the enrollment. Mm-hmm. So, and then uh, I'm wondering with the private schools, um, what kind of uh, standards are they going to teach on? Do they, are they required to obey by the same? No. You know, they don't. So, um, wh- where's the quality coming from? Where's the data that that is the solution, you know, that all private schools or charter schools or religious-based schools do such a great job? Compared to public schools, because the governor said so. That's <laughs> well. I want. I would like to see the data discussed instead of just having politics reign. Because if there's clear data that that's the best way and we have success, well, who has an argument with that at that point if it works? Well, we do. I mean, I will say there are there are uh, private and charter schools we know that do well. Like Montessori has a great reputation. Absolutely. I mean, there are those schools out there. I mean, we have schools in in our neighborhood that are very well regarded, but those are the ones you've heard of because they're so good. Well, and Plato is even run by our district, so it does do well because they follow what they're supposed to. But I mean, there's tons of other, like what we refer to on the podcast is like these Mickey Mouse schools that is just somebody just opened up like a 501c3 or something and Mm -hmm. just decided to make their house a school now. And Mm -hmm. and it's apparently not that difficult to do. Oh, and I'm beating a dead horse here by saying this one as well, but these Montessori schools that do so well, they can cap enrollment. They don't have to worry about having class sizes of over 30 children, right? They can say, no, we're going to take 300 kids all year. And that's how they run their school. If I mean, again, I say this a lot. Can you imagine if public schools were just like, "Mm, we're full, guys. Sorry, you can't come. (laughs) Yes, I can imagine. Got to find somewhere else to go because you you can't come here. Find a different neighborhood school. Yeah. Yeah. Move somewhere else. It's insane. So, I mean, yes, we can obviously understand why these other schools could be more successful than a public school. I mean, it's there. You can see it. But at the same time, I want to ask Mary this question. We get a lot of kids that come back from charter schools. We mm-hmm. do. How do you find like their, their 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 progress? Where do you find they are when they come into your school from your experience? It depends on the school. Now, okay. like I said, Plato is really good. And there's a couple other schools that are in the area that are pretty good about keeping the information up to date. They send the folders. They send the information. We can call over to the school and get talk to the you know, the people in the office and find out information. But if they come from out of state or somewhere else, it's luck of the draw because it's not uniform and it's not across the board the same because everybody writes their IEPs differently. Every Mm -hmm. state requires different stuff. Hmm. So even out of state, it's a little bit more work. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I think the uh, that Montessori, when, let's talk about that. That's an Italian-based system, right? I've seen uh, different types of schools in different countries, and I have to say, um, Italy, for example, everybody's an artist in Italy. Why is that? Because they emphasize the arts from kindergarten all the way until the, you know, until it's college or job training time. You get artists. I've I've been in private houses, and who painted this? Oh, that was my daughter, and yeah, this is grandpa, and, and it's very normal. So what that tells me is you really get what you put into the system. What are your priorities? And you can see it. Uh, the result will tell you what the priorities are, really. The school that I graduated from, 
graduated from is a performing arts high school in Osceola County, Florida. And um, I was in my art class. So this is my senior year. And I remember uh, the teacher had given us just like a mirror, uh, some charcoal pencils and a piece of paper. And it was like the very first thing we did. And she said, just to see where everybody's at, go ahead and do like a self-portrait. And we were like, all right, cool. And of course, mine was janky. I'm not like a real artist. Everybody else's was like anime style. This one girl from Italy turns hers around and it's photorealistic. And she's just like, yeah. oh, this is all I could do in five yeah. minutes. And we were all like, unbelievable. <laughs> right. And she was, she yeah. just came from an, a regular Italian school. Yep. And that's what they do. I mean, my daughter's <laughs> been in the school there and, and you can tell the difference. Uh, the priorities are visible. And I think that anybody that goes into another school, it may be another state or even within the district, you sense what's going on pretty fast. And the priorities are, are, are clear. For us right now, it's just a question, do we want to experiment with public schools a little bit more, maybe? Maybe we can dare a little bit more. If Montessori is so special, why can't we do it? Why can't we have the right support and have pilot projects going on? Why can't we cooperate with local universities, have pilot programs? If it doesn't work, the results should be worse. I will guarantee that any new idea that has some reasonable background will probably have a benefit. Why not experiment? Yeah, but how are their football teams? That's really important. That is important. Oh, yeah. They don't have football no. teams. No, <laughs> yeah. not going to qualify. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to do our base awards, guys. So stick around. Are you concerned about recent book bannings and the erasure of diverse experiences in literature and history? On May 6th, from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., the Unitarian Universalists of Clearwater will be hosting a Band and Challenge Book Giveaway. They believe in the inherent dignity and worth of every individual and oppose any effort to suppress or erase diverse populations. This free book distribution is open to all young people of all ages, with children under 16 accompanied by a parent or a guardian. Attendees may select two free books from their collection of banned or challenged literature and take it home. This event's located at the Unitarian Universalist of Clearwater Campus, located at 2470 Nursery Road over here in Clearwater, Florida. If you happen to be in Pinellas County, guys, swing by and show support for our communities. Mark it on your calendar. We hope to see you there. Hello there. If you support the podcast, you can now donate directly to us from the link in the description. You can donate 99 cents, 4.99, or 9.99 monthly. Your donation can help get me, Aziz, off the streets. Well, unfortunately, Aziz will always be on the streets. He yearns for the streets. But your support will go towards producing high-quality episodes just like the one you're listening to right now. Your support helps us keep gas in the tank, food on our tables, and our classrooms full of pencils and paper. We all know edumacators all over America are undervalued and underpaid. Help us, mooks like me, continue to bring recognition and a voice to education professionals. And we're back. So, as always, we're going to do our based award, which is something that is agreeable or respectable. And with that, we're going to go and pass the puck off to our good friend, Philip Belcastro. Oh, I get to go first. You're our first person today. Um, well, my base award goes to the people of France. If you've been watching the news, the labor movement in France is 
is wild right now. They've got uh, their sanitation workers went on strike. Their public transportation people went on strike. Good for them. It's I mean, it is the most solidarity of solidarity the entire nation right now. They shut the city of uh, Paris down so thoroughly that there's like one story of trash heaped up everywhere. And I read, it sounds disgusting, because it is. I mean, the uh-huh. city's covered in rats. But the people are said, you know what? This is because of, uh, this is, we're all doing this together. And we are willing to live with the trash and the rats. The public transportation shut down the highways and buses and trains so thoroughly that people were wheeling their luggage down the highway to get to the airport. So they are they are all lockstep with one another, their union. And this is all over pension, which by, this is like France already has a very low uh, like retirement age. Um, and Macron is trying to raise it. Raise raise it, it. Yeah. He wants from to raise it. 62 to 64. He wants to make it from 62 to 64 years old. What is America's right now? 89? I don't know. <laughs> never I will retire. Never I think never it depends retire. on when you're born. Yeah, yeah. I will yeah. never see it. So I'm not yes. worried about it. Um, but the, to the people of France, you are incredibly based in, in sticking up for each other and dealing with the trash, dealing with the transportation and everybody doing it together to do what's right. I'm going to Paris this June. So Ooh, yeah. by then Hope you may have see that resolved. Bring nose Hopefully they, pay, they take the trash out. I don't know. May- yeah. Oh, you get to take the trash. I don't know. <laughs> I, get to take the trash. <laughs> I don't know if you're getting there. I think the, I think the airports are shut down. Yeah. I mean, you might be swimming. Uh, I guess yeah. I'm going to walk down the highway. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Rizal, what well, is your base of I have this was an easy one. Shout out to all my geometry students that survive three quarters without having their phone for 45 minutes a day and they're still alive. And for the most part, they were agreeable to the rule that I put up because no focus, no work, no learning. They are mostly, I think, buying into it now, although they probably still hate it, but they understand why. How did they do it? I don't know. (laughs) I had to remind them once in a while. I start my lesson with just a quick reminder. The phones are powered off, stowed away, ideally in your backpack. Ideally. (laughs) I do want to also say, Rizelle is a very well-liked and very well-respected math teacher by the students. All the students love Miss Rizelle. Um, they do complain about the amount of homework that she oh, gives. I'm so but sorry. Yeah, that, that's Not, just the way it goes. Got to practice it in order <laughs> and, to learn it. Yeah, exactly. there's no way around that, guys. Yeah. It's just the way it is. And it's, she does. Uh, she does phenomenal um, testing score numbers. Yes. So she gets results. The kids love and respect her. And that's from as an English person who hated math class. That is very based. That I is used very to respectable. Hate math too, at some point. <laughs> I now I love math. it. Now I love it. I it's just math. something to be math. But hey, shout out to you because. Something's working. Something's doing the Lord's work. Uh (laughs) I'm going to give a shout out to myself because I am not working this summer. I am taking the summer off. Hey, I'm not going to teach summer bridge. I'm not going to work credit recovery. I'm going to enjoy my summer and work on my house and do things around my house that I need to get done and then come back to school in August when we're supposed to. As refreshed as you possibly can be well, after a full after year. after a full year and <laughs> only having two months off and spending a week and a half in Orlando. Oh, no. You need a vacation from that. NEA. Yes. Yeah. I'll no, be that's there too. NEA. So we'll be partying it up in Orlando. So. Well, you know, we're going to do a podcast episode every day for NEA. So maybe you could be on again then. Oh, absolutely. Does that I mean will I do have that. to go to Orlando? Because I will not. That means you will have to no, be there. No, no. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm putting all of this equipment on offer up as soon as we're finished. <laughs> 
Um, I want to give a shout out to HCTA, our good friends across the bay. Um, Emily and Nicole, if you're listening, shout out to you guys. They have obtained almost all of their demands through a special magistrate as of today. Good for them. Oh, yes. They went into impasse and they had salary adjustments since they had no raises for two years. That's always fun. They're getting supplement increases and they're also getting hourly supplement raises for ESP, that is education support professionals. They're doing great over there. Um, They're celebrating. They're going to have a party tonight probably. Yeah. It's been a long few months. I think how long has it been since November, I think? I don't know. It's been a long time. I, yep. Emily gives me updates and it's, it's hard to stay on top of it, but. And going into impasse is never. No, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't yeah, know what's going to no. happen. It feels yeah. funny in between. right? So I'm sure they're all feeling a giant weight getting off their shoulders there. And absolutely. It's, it's this party time now. So maybe if we get HCTA and PCTA together as if, as if the people of France did <laughs> and to march in solidarity. <laughs> Yeah, okay. we need to march in solidarity. Yes, yeah. we do. We need to make sure that we're doing everything that we need to do to get all of us together. Yeah, sanitation, post workers, uh, firefighters, police. Let's get all of them together. We need the we need the French solidarity. They know what they know how to do it. Yes, they're showing us every day right now. Absolutely, but I eat freedom fries, so <laughs> you can keep that. <laughs> all right, ratatouille. <laughs> And I think with that, we're going to head off. So thank you again for listening to PCTA's Fire Podcast. As always, I'm Brennan. I'm Philip. Stephanie Roselle. Mary Gressley. Have a great day, guys. Peace out. Thank you. Hey, everyone. We would like to remind our listeners about important school board meetings taking place on March 21st and April 11th at 10 a.m., as well as a 5 p.m. meeting on April 25th. Remember, it's vital for teachers, parents, and community members to attend these meetings and advocate for public education. Your voice and presence can play a significant role in shaping the future of education and improving the lives of students in our community. We want to give a special thank you to Philip Belcastro for providing our theme music and Artifact for adding some great tracks into our intermissions. If you haven't already, be sure to check out Artifact's music at artifactjoints.bandcamp.com. We also want to express our gratitude to Radio St. Pete for airing our podcast, Jamie Beck, Brian Balton, Carla Correa, and Nancy Filardi, as well as all of our supporters in the education community. Your support and dedication has been instrumental to getting the word out and reaching new listeners. Well, that's all for today. I'm Brennan Pickett. You guys have a great day.